Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of This Is Hate CD. We are the number one human-centered design podcast globally, and proudly coming to you from my base in Dublin, Ireland. Today in the show, we have, up until recently, the world's first chief design officer within a bank setting, Ofer Yomtov. And as mentioned, Ofer recently exited ANZ Bank in Australia, where after seven years, he was a crucial piece of their journey towards becoming more design-centric. At the time of editing, there are over 200 designers within the organisation. Pretty remarkable for any design-led business out there, but even more so when you think about the heavy regulation that persists within the areas of banking. This episode is quite simply a must-listen for anyone within the banking space globally who is banging their head against a wall, dreaming of helping move the dial forward within the organisation. Now we hear Ofer's perspective and advice to designers who are in this situation right now. So even if you aren't part of a banking industry, this is a great opportunity to hear from behind the executive curtain, so to speak. Before we talk more about today's episode, I need to say thank you to today's sponsor, Miro, who have kindly supported and sponsored this episode. And Miro gave me free reign to write whatever I felt was important for people like you to hear about my perspective of using their tool and service. And quite simply, I have hundreds, if not thousands of canvases within my Miro account. I use it for idea generation and also documentation. But one of the coolest features is creating asynchronous learning journeys for people to complete. So I like to embed podcast episodes and videos that I find interesting within my courses. So you can create journeys that the learner can go on within the canvas. It's pretty cool. So sign up today at miro.com forward slash podcast where you can get three free canvases. Now back to the episode with Ofer. Now we talk openly for over 80 minutes about the entire journey that he went on from the start to finish, including the crucial hires, the peaks and troughs, the organisations he helped bring in to help support his journey and his mission, and where he sees service design within their future. Ofer is now on his own journey forming his own consultancy, and it's a case of watching this space to see where to next for him. So be sure to connect with them on LinkedIn. Now, if you like what we're doing here at This Is Hate CD, and if you're here and you're listening, hopefully you are, be sure to hit subscribe, the subscribe button or the like button, wherever you're watching or listening this episode. If you like these episodes, think about becoming a member of the premium This Is Hate CD by visiting thisishatecd.com forward slash premium, where you get the episodes earlier. It's an ad-free stream as well. Let's jump straight in. Oh, fair. I'm delighted to have you on the show today. A very warm welcome to This Is Hate CD. But for our listeners, maybe start off and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what you do. Thank you, Jerry. Very nice to chat with you. And I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure to listen to your podcasts. And I should thank you for what you've been doing, just giving designers an opportunity to hear from different people around the world so just keep doing what you're doing a little bit about me um i have just left anz australian new zealand bank as their first chief design officer i was there for almost seven years wow and i'm in the process of setting up a consulting company that we might talk about a little bit later on um but prior to that um i Spent about 10 years with IDR in Silicon Valley, 
Palo Alto and also in Shanghai. Right. My background is actually in mechanical engineering and in business. Wow. Welcome. And uh, and so that's uh, my journey to design is an interesting topic for us to potentially cover. But um, that's probably a little bit about me. I'm based yeah. in Sydney, Australia. Yeah. But my accent is a South African accent. Right. I was going to ask. And my name is Israeli. It's a Hebrew name. So there's a bit of a mixed bag there, like a lot of us Aussies here. It's, it seems to be a common trend with the guests that I have on the show that they've lived or they've got lots of different uh, cultural influences throughout their life. Um, what does that perspective give you as a design leader? That the fact that you can draw on the fact that there's South African, there's Israeli, Australian, American. What's, what's that giving you as a person and as a practitioner? I think as designers, um, the more perspectives we can bring to bear on a problem, the more effectively we can solve a solution. Um, it's a little bit like when you learn multiple languages. Uh, uh, the moment you learn your second language, <clears throat> you're able to look more critically at your first language. Mm. So if you've grown up in a single culture or you've been immersed in a single company culture, um, that is the boundary of your experience. And yeah. so you don't, you just assume that everything you've experienced is actually uh, normal or the truth or the right way to do things until you have a second experience and then you can compare and contrast to the first. So I would say that living in multiple environments or frankly, working for multiple organizations actually gives you an opportunity. Not only does it give you multiple perspectives, but it also helps you to look critically at each of your experiences. Mm. And so then I think it helps you form your own point of view because you realize that there's more than there, um, there's always more than one way to do something or more than one perspective or more than one, um, thing that is considered right, which is interesting. Mm. And so at that point you realize you need to bring discretion to the table. I think from a designer's perspective, especially when we're designing for people, I think it helps you become a little bit more attuned to culture and the fact that people are different and there are many, many aspects that influence the way that they look at the world, the way that they think about things, the way they perceive things. And it forces you not to be so, I guess, arrogant to assume that the way that the things that you think are right or the things that you think are the most effective way to do things are actually the right way to do things. Yeah. Well, now that you've exited ANZ, um, you were there for seven years. You mentioned there that you had a big block in the US as well. What do you feel the legacy is when you've left ANZ after seven years? What's the legacy that you believe you've left behind and what's the hope for the future uh, based on the work and the seedlings that you placed within the culture? <laughs> uh, legacy is a very loaded word. I know. We all, like to think, we all like to think that we leave sort of an indelible mark 
or, you know, footprints that are going to be um, uh, frozen into the landscape. And that's the hope. Who knows? Yeah. You know, in the scheme of things, it's very likely, you know, that oh, all of us who think there might be a legacy might be uh, disappointed. But um, but on that point, though, Fair, like, can, can I just yeah. jump in at that point? Because before yeah. you joined ANZ, like I was a, uh, a customer of ANZ from 2003 and there was always a kind of a, a poor cousin um, a mindset whenever I had compare against some of the other banks in Australia. There was CBA who always seemed to be doing something that was always kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. And ANZ, it was kind of like the Liverpool of the Premier League where they're, they're kind of, they'd done some good stuff, but they were yet to kind of find their coach and find their, their kind of mojo. And when I was leaving Australia, there was kind of whispers that something was going to happen. And I'd done work with all the banks except ANZ. I don't know what the connection is there. But um, you were hired in 2017 and things started to change where design entered the conversation. And from working alongside people in ANZ for a couple of years now, I know that the culture changed. And we can't pinpoint it. It wouldn't be fair to all the wonderful people in, in the bank to say it was the arrival of Oakfair that, that managed to do that. But when I speak about your legacy in terms of the last seven years, Definitely, it seems that the trajectory of the organization has gone somewhat towards design-led. So I'm keen to understand a little bit more around your influence, I guess. It's probably a nicer way of saying it, around building that capacity uh, within an organization, which I don't know how many people is. Is there 10,000 people in ANZ? Oh, 40,000. 40,000 people. 40,000. The, the, the town I grew up in as a boy had 40,000 people in it. So let's let's talk about that. You entered the doors. Is it 2017? It was, wasn't it? 2000, yeah, two, late 2016. Late 2016. Okay. So you you entered the door. Paint a picture for us. What it was like? Yeah, in yeah. Terms of, what was well, the legacy before that? Yeah. No. Look, I I, I think that uh, uh, you're absolutely right. There was a, well, there has been quite a dramatic change in yeah. culture and focus and mindset at ANZ. And um, as I'm sure that we'll touch on this theme many times in this conversation, a lot of that change is due to leadership, right? Um, and so the reason I joined ANZ was because I saw, I'd had an opportunity to do a little bit of consulting, like a try before you buy, and dipped my toe in the water at ANZ, I had an opportunity to observe some very refreshing um, leadership, both in terms of the relatively new CEO at the time, Shane Elliott, and in Miley Carnegie, who hired me. Miley was brought into ANZ to help lead the digital transformation. Previously, she had run Google in Australia, and before that, she ran uh, Asia Pacific for Procter & Gamble. Yeah. And so um, with the change in, in company leadership came a very different outlook and a very different culture. And that's the, that's the aspirational culture that I was joining. So immediately, I'd say um, fr from the very top, there was an opportunity to create uh, a different culture and a culture mm. that was much more supportive of design. 
But when I joined when I joined ANZ, there was a a small, uh, and I would say relatively strong and passionate yeah. design community yeah. uh, at the company. But um, I'd say in most cases relegated to um, this, uh, late stage design execution. So I would say not very much part of the conversation of deciding what should be done, where should we take the products, the experiences, the direction of the company. It was uh, leadership having an idea, whether it was right or wrong. Uh, the idea was developed by leadership. Hmm. And then at some point, designers were brought in to execute, not to define the direction. Yeah. Um, and so fast forward seven years. And again, uh, this is a, when we talk legacy, I think it's, especially in a big company and especially when we talk design, which is such a team sport. Um, and I'm not trying to project, you know, incredible humility. I'm actually just more trying to kind of describe the reality Yeah, is that um, we're talking about the legacy of uh, a whole community of people who were all focused on dramatically changing the company in order to remain competitive, right? Where we, where, where I, when I left, we had, um, substantially more designers who were all attracted to the same vision who were now um, brought in much earlier in the conversation and in many cases brought in by leaders at the point where leaders were genuinely asking where should we go next what should we do Uh, what are our customers telling us what are they um, how do we compete how do we give customers, how do we change customers' lives for the better? Those mm-hmm. kind of open-ended questions, or even further upstream, where should we focus? What should yeah. we do? Which options should we select, et cetera? And so for me, that's exciting. I think that's a big part of the, if you mm-hmm. call it a legacy of design, the fact that more and more people at ANZ across the bank began to see design as an additional approach uh, uh, to kind of dealing into the future. Yeah. In addition to executing very elegantly. So for me, that's yeah. great. Uh, and the fact that we've got many, many more people at ANZ talking about uh, design, having uh, the language of design baked into the vernacular of the company, things like let's prototype, let's experiment. What are the yeah. insights? Um, uh, and having more obsession about customer experience. So yeah. there's definitely, I mean, there's, there's definitely that, uh, and you can feel it across the company that certainly yeah. wasn't there as strongly seven years ago. Um, and I think that they're just getting started, to be honest. Yeah, it's at the team at the moment, as I understand, it's about 250, 260 there's designers. Two, 200 designers across the business. Other designers across the business. Yeah, just going back to that that question about what it looked like in the early days. You're right; there were some really standout user experience designers that I know of that were in the business 100%. before, before uh, Miley and before yourself. Okay. Yeah, and some um, of them are still there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. there's some people who've gone on to to do amazing things internationally as well. Um, but I want to talk to you just on that point to where design was at. It almost being treated like a decoration, like an afterthought. You know, follow through in the executions. 
a lot of people that listen to this podcast are working in institutions where they're trying to push the agenda and they may not have the ear of executives or leadership. They might be stuck within the middle management sphere. What advice do you give to them who are trying to push the design agenda? Do you believe it is possible to do that without a Miley, a Miley Carnegie in the organization? Or what's the alternative? See, Bob, we're getting into change agent Nelson Mandela territory. Yeah. Um, That's probably a bit bold to say Nelson Mandela territory, but certainly change agent. I have very, I have two very polar responses to that. Yeah. Response number one is uh, leave that organization, right? If you do not have support from leaders and leaders don't get it, uh, I would say unless there is a massive prize at the end, meaning if you, that it's an organization with a very strong mission in society. Yeah. And it's worth you sticking around to try to make change because the benefits will be substantial both for the world and maybe also for your career, then give it a go. Otherwise, I'd say it is unbelievably difficult. And trust me, yeah, I've tried over many years in many organizations, including at IDO. We had we worked with many clients where our clients brought us in to help try to influence their leaders. Mm. It is Unbelievably difficult to change uh, an executive's worldview or a view of how they should think about solving business problems. Because by the time an executive has reached a senior level, they are pretty confident in their skills and by and large, you know, for the right reason, right? It's worked for them. Yeah. And so when you come in and say, hey, there is a different way or, you know, if you can be so bold as to say a better way, most people, right, you and I also will kind of look at that bit suspiciously, right? We know what we know and we start to get a little bit closed mindset at some point. So mm-hmm. I would say my first response to that is it is incredibly hard to change anybody's opinion yeah. by an approach. Uh, especially with something where we as designers really struggle to articulate what, you know, what is this fuzzy design thing? I'd say in most cases, go and find yourself a place where, you know, there is already a leader who is either, you know, design savvy or design curious, right? Now, so that's one option is run away. And for me, the reason I joined ANZ was because, there was a Miley and there was a Shane and there was already a culture that was supportive, right? So in it's some respects, I, yeah, I took the easy path, if you like, right? I did my due diligence and I found an organization that was ripe for embedding so that I could get on with the embedding and not, not have to spend all my time trying to change the mindset of the leader at the top. So that's option yeah. number one. Yeah. If you've decided you are going to stick around and make that change and you are struggling, right? then uh, you need a multi-pronged approach. I've seen a lot of designers, including me, at points go, you know what, if I can just do some big showcase projects, right? if I can just show people the value, then they will come. And uh, that is fraught. Yeah. Firstly, because 
uh, you, uh, there's a little bit of a chicken or the egg. You need enough support and enough attention and resource in order to do the right showcase project in order to prove. And you're not going to get that support unless there's already the value there. So that, but if for whatever reason you're able to somehow rally the troops, you know, work under the radar and make some magic, um, I have been more disappointed than I have been elated by the fact that most people still don't get it. Right? Yeah. They still don't get it. And the reason for that is design still, unfortunately, or fortunately, is such a team sport yeah. that you can't necessarily claim that it was design that delivered the results, right? Because there were there was a team, a community of people who had to come together across all disciplines and functions to actually deliver. And to it wasn't, it wasn't design that brought, you know, over Yamtov into ANZ, it was the business. Um, so when you look at it from that perspective as well, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's a team sport, as you like to say. That's On it. that point, though, you, you started, as you said, late 2016. Uh, you had maybe the seedlings of, you know, kernels, we say, of, of design sitting there within the organization. But I want to talk to you about your key hires. So on reflection, um, you know, who was it you hired in terms of the skill sets? Um, and also with the benefit of reflection now, what would you have done differently? So I had the good fortune to hire a few people internally from yeah, ANZ. Okay. Right. Uh, who were and continue to be fabulous. Yeah. One of those people you interviewed on the show, I don't know, was it was last year or earlier this year, Is she? Uh, Michelle. Michelle Walters, Michelle Walter, yeah. Um, yeah. Michelle Walter uh, uh, helped us establish uh, an incredibly strong and very inspirational design operations function. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, your prior interview with her was fantastic, and I would highly recommend. I know you will, but I'd highly recommend that people go and. Listen to yeah, that podcast because put a link to that get one in the show. Even... What's that? I put a link to that one in the show notes. Yes, yes. Well, she um, uh, it, it, she also gives a deep insight into the organization. Yeah, and um, uh, and so uh, she brought an incredible amount of passion for culture and for for uh, learning and development and for um recruiting the right designers and hmm. for um, equipping them with the right tools and support and environment and experiences and inspiration. So I have to say, in terms of a, an incredibly important and impactful hire, I'd say bringing in somebody who can help you operationalize at scale and doing yeah. that from day one is a big deal. And um, I was... Not very, to be honest, I wasn't very familiar with uh, design operations. It's a relatively yeah. new, new function yeah. and one that, you know, you only really need to start, in most cases, you think you only need to start talking about when you are at scale. Yeah. Uh, but I would say, uh, regardless of the size of design team that you're building, I would invest in design operations, even if at a small scale, you can't justify hiring another individual to focus mm -hmm. on it full time, I would certainly make it a a hat 
um, yeah. or a, a part-time role of one of your designers or frankly, somebody who is supportive of design to help you create a wonderful environment for your designers. So that was one. Yeah. On, on that point, when you bring in, you hired internally for, for that role, um, there's usually a historical hierarchical process to um, progress in the organization. Now, within the design world, those titles don't always align with that hierarchy. So it could be senior designer, a mid-designer, a lead designer, a head of design. Did you face that problem in terms of uh, designers hitting a glass ceiling? And if so, how did you combat it? Because it's an interesting, I know it's a challenge for several banks that I'm coaching with at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are a number, it's a mess. Let me say yeah. it is a mess, right? Um, designers, oh, is what we like to say. As designers, we don't, we don't help ourselves. You know, yeah. we don't have, we don't have a consistent way of talking about design. Yeah. And we certainly do not have industry recognized standards, uh, role titles. You know, um, I've met people who've got senior designer, right, on their uh, resume and they, they've been out of school for two years. Yeah. Right. Uh, and in the organization that they came from, that was the, the, the label they gave people. And in some cases, it's because the people who were running design or the people who ran the organization didn't actually understand the duration or the levels of maturity or mastery required to actually be an experienced designer. Yeah. So we certainly, and we had that mess inside, I think because we had designers spread all across the organization, uh, led by people who didn't understand design, they were quite um, lax about the titles that they gave designers. So okay. we, we had a, ch in, in, uh, number one, number two, we had junior designers who were promoted, I think in some cases prematurely. Mm. And so, you know, like a lot of large organizations or governments, we have, you know, a very specific job grading, uh, grading or banding. And so uh, coming into an organization with an existing set of designers with, you know, this kaleidoscope of job titles. Yeah. and grades, uh, it made it incredibly difficult to determine who was actually good at their job and who was, who was genuinely at a certain level of seniority and mastery. And on, I'd say on, it took us a long time to get that all sorted out. On that point, though, for like Australia, as you know, as regards attraction of talent, is incredibly competitive, Okay. So people move around regularly, like they follow the money in many instances. But what happens in terms of when you look at that ladder structure that's within a lot of the banking institutions where you're at, you know, level three and that equates to $65,000 a year, whereas in the industry, you can go out and work for a startup for $85,000. Did you face that kind of problem to attract talent where you could say, listen, you might have been a senior designer in that previous job. We're going to give you a mid-level and you're going to get paid less. Did you have those kind of scenarios arrive? And if so, how did you get around them and attract the talent? Mm, mm, mm. Look, um, when in most cases, you would assume that when you're faced with an opportunity to work for a startup yeah. or a Google 
right? Versus working for an almost 200-year-old legacy bank. Yeah. That if you're a cool, hip designer, you're probably going to go down the startup, you know, tech route. Um, we had a number of things going for us. This mm. is where, firstly, having a chief design officer in an organization back in 2017 really helped because it sent a signal to the design community that said, Hey, we at ANZ really care about design Mm. and we value it strategically. Yeah. And so that, that helped tremendously because a lot of designers have gone through the frustration of working in organizations that don't get them and don't get designed or have a very specific, as you called it, a glass ceiling. Hmm. And so here's an organization, very non-traditional organization for designers, where clearly that ceiling was shattered. Yeah. So that helped tremendously. The other thing that, you know, doesn't hurt is the fact that banking tends to pay better than a lot of other industries. Yeah. That's good and bad, right? On the one hand, it's great for designers to be remunerated very well. I think that's fabulous. And so they should be. The flip side though, is, uh, it puts even more, uh, importance on making sure you recruit the right people, because otherwise you get a situation where you've got people who are potentially paid more than they would in other, above average than in other industries. And so they don't move around as seamlessly as they should, right? You really want people to be in a, in a work environment because they choose to be there, not because there are some structural elements like, you know, higher pay that are keeping their, them there. So, but bottom line is there were a number of things that helped us, but I have to say, this is where your interview with M- Michelle Walter really tells a wonderful story because we realized very early on the main thing that we need to do to attract designers other than, Hey, there's this chief design officer. So we love design and we pay pretty well is actually, we want to be in an environment where you get to work with other great designers. We will double down on your growth and development, and we will take it super seriously. And I'm very proud of what we did in that space. I still think it's quite world-class and continues to be. Um, and, um, we, um, we will work very hard to make sure that you are working on fabulous kind of challenges. And, and that I think is the right, that that's where you should start when it comes to yeah. attracting designers. Now tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. Now you could say, no, that's not true, Jerry. Um, when I look at the trajectory of things that, uh, ANZ have done, there seems to be a lot of hiring in around the user experience space. Um, was there a conscious decision not to hire service designers in that role? Because I've struggled to find any kind of service design legacy again within the, the organization over the last maybe five or six years. Mm-hmm. Are you okay to talk about uh, that? What, what, yeah, yeah, what, absolutely. I would, I would maybe frame the question a little differently. Um, uh, and say, has there been an investment in service design at ANZ? Ha- has right. there? And the answer to that is absolutely without a shadow of a doubt, right? In fact, now that probably is the other, if you want to call it legacy, I think, um, there is in the last seven years, we've embedded a very strong, uh, 
combination of service and strategic design into the organization. There is a function uh, that is now uh, one of our kind of fastest growing functions in service and strategic design that uh, is brought in incredibly early at the, call it the fuzzy front end of strategy and projects uh, where service designers and strategic designers play a very key role. But that certainly, that language wasn't really there seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say, yes, UX is still uh, the primary UX and uh, uh, visual design and UI are still the biggest disciplines and for good reason, right? Uh, banks are technology and digital companies. Yeah. And uh, increasingly, the way that you interact with a bank as a service is through screens hmm. and to some extent through human beings. And so there is so much work that needs to be done at the coal face of designing the mm. interaction between customers and technology and screens. Mm. But also the other thing that I'm really, really excited about, the other kind of change is that there is an increasing focus on applying design for employee experiences, right? Yeah. So if you think about managing 40,000 people and the fact that all of those people are spending their days in front of digital screens, either collaborating with each other or working with knowledge management systems or HR systems or procurement systems, all of those things really should be designed as well. And they're usually forgotten because we spend all of our time thinking about the shiny, you know, mobile banking app rather than the HR, you know, uh, internal web-based experience. Um, we've got UX designers and to some extent, service designers working on employee experiences. But that's a really long-winded way of saying, yes, yes, double down on service and strategic design. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think, on both employee and as well as customer mm. experiences. So in that, in that seven years, in the absence of, I'm not naive enough to think that if you didn't have a service designer there, service design wasn't happening. Okay, so just to caveat that. Who was kind of fulfilling that role within the organization? Was that a product yeah. management function or h- how was design informing the strategy, like the yeah. coordination and the orchestration of all of yeah. these elements together? Well, uh, look, uh, it's the same as any design discipline, right? Uh, design things happen, right? People build buildings, even if they don't have an architect, right? People yeah. build banking or government or hospitality or troubled services, even if there's no service designer there. Um, sure. You have to break down what, what a service designer does. But if you, if you take a very mechanical, functional view and say that they basically help to choreograph an end-to-end experience and journeys, right? And I know that's a very simplistic view, but just you are a mechanical engineer. exercise. Yep. Um, then uh, the people who were fulfilling that function would have been and continue to be business analysts, yeah. uh, process engineers, um, system architects, yeah. and the and the business leaders who sat across those groups as well. 
who were mm. basically going, look, we have a bit of value we need to deliver. We know we need a call center. We know we need a branch. We know we need a mortgage processing capability. Uh, and so those things would emerge. But as, you, as we've seen in any service, any frustrating service experience that, we, that we've all had, right? If you do not consciously design an end-to-end experience, then you get a very haphazard experience where people and really great, conscious, smart people have focused on their bits of the journey of the process. And in most cases done it very well, but because there hasn't been an, a, a, an architect or a curator to connect all the bits and pieces together, you get this really painful transition mm-hmm. from one step to the next. And so that's generally what's happened. And uh, in most cases, it's because, ironically, service organizations um, didn't look at themselves as designing an experience, right? And so design was never part of the conversation. Hey, sorry for interrupting the episode, but I wanted to tell you about today's sponsor, Miro. Many people connect it to just being another business collaboration tool, but for me, it's so much more. I use it to manage my own Ikigai, to help me keep track of my own life and career. This one here that you can see won't get shared to anyone else, so it's a private board. Only I can see it. Now the beauty of all this is I didn't need to create these canvases from scratch. People on the Miroverse upload them, and there's a constant stream of updated frameworks there for all us change makers all around the world to use for free. Many of which come with really detailed instructions on how to use them. So for more information, see www.miro.com forward slash podcast, where you can get three free canvases for free for life. Let's get back into that episode. Even though it's now, what, 80, 90% of the global economy, it's uh, it's only now emerging, which is very surprising. Services. Well, services are underpinning so much. But let's talk about your remit. Is that kind of orchestration role, was that in your remit and actually... um, providing the stimulus for the conversations um, and, you know, l- looking at the overarching research and the legacy of research and the future of research and really helping guide the ship with the likes of Marnie, uh, Miley and, and Shane. The remit, interestingly, so I was, I was the first uh, chief design officer of any bank oh, globally. Globally. That's right. Yeah. Um, and Just so like, no, that, really... that is right. <laughs> What's that? So just to let you know that is right, I checked. Yeah, that's. I will thank you for the uh, thank you for the uh, the fact checking. Um, yeah. The, so it didn't really come with a handbook, right? Yeah. Or a playbook, and, and so really the remit um, also evolved. I have to say, I really um, got to hand it to Miley for uh, creating the role. And having the vision, she was very, and continues to be very keen to build a number of capabilities across the bank, including marketing and data and, you know, hardcore, um, uh, progressive, uh, engineering and design. Yeah. And so at the time, the area that seemed like the biggest opportunity for design was really embedding human centered design. Yeah as a capability across the whole organization. So the, at the beginning, it was very much embed human-centered design across the whole organization. 
and help us grow a world-class community of designers, right? Can I there was less, at, what's that? Can I, can I pause you on that point, just like about yes. embed, embedding human-centered design across yes. the organization? Put, let's put an underline on that one. If you want, you can continue, but I'd love to know what you mean. And how did you go about doing that? Because it's such Ooh. a hard thing to really yeah. embed. Yeah. In terms of it's Look, the mindset. That's a massive deep dive. And let's, let's focus on that. But just to finish on the remit yeah. conversation, um, the remit evolved to become, uh, sorry, yeah, even in Miley's original definition of the role, <laughs> the the objective was to improve the customer experiences, right? Yeah. And so even though there wasn't sort of deep clarity about, you know, help us curate and choreograph end-to-end experiences, but if you work backwards from the objective, which is help us build what we need to do to improve and to create world-class customer experiences, then there are a range of other parts of the remit that sort of matured and evolved over time that were necessary in order to get to better customer experiences. And one of those is, you know, just help us connect the dots between all the different yeah. experiences. So that's, that's that. But human-centered design, that's a massive topic and certainly happy yeah. to dive into how to build capability. But it's, it's really refreshing that you can see that it's a multifaceted approach. It wasn't seen as a, lads, Everyone, let's just connect these dots. That's all you need to do. It's not hard. A lot of organizations send, they come back to me with this, this feedback from leadership that they don't really understand that it's a multifaceted approach, especially when it comes to human-centered design. But what were the kind of things that you were doing to really, I guess, popularize and help include human-centered design into the organizational lexicon? Like, how, how were you doing that? What was the activities that you did? I'd love to know a little bit more around the strategy around that. Yeah. Well, so I mentioned before, uh, showcase projects. Yeah. As a way to convert. And interestingly, when I spoke about showcase projects before, I was sort of talking about them in the negative. I was saying, you know, if you need to rely on a showcase project to change the mindset of your leaders, then that's a tough call. Yeah, absolutely. However, if your leader or your specific sponsor is has the influence and has a, a really great understanding of design, and they are willing to fund and sponsor great showcase projects with some really you know massive horsepower behind them, then showcase projects are a wonderful thing. Yeah. And so, uh, Miley actually commissioned two projects at the very beginning of my, in fact, even before I was, I was still in a consulting role, two showcase projects. Number one was, um, help us envision the, um, an aspirational business owner experience mm -hmm. to create a kind of a future direction for our business banking. And the second was, uh, how might we create a magnificent homeowner experience, not a mortgage, you know, borrowing experience, but a homeowner experience. Okay. And so two very open-ended and aspirational briefs 
And we basically used it and they were very well funded with commitment to execute whatever came out of there. And look, it checked that uh, Miley cut at the back end. Uh, And so uh, that gave us an opportunity to really showcase what great HCD looks like. And I mean, really great. We had an opportunity to scope those pieces of work very well. Mm. We engaged a very, very broad set of stakeholders, including, including senior leaders. We put many of them on our steering teams for those projects so that they could observe the entire process all the way through. Sure. We made sure that we didn't kick those projects off until they were all involved and committed and excited about the brief and then had an opportunity to weigh in on the direction that these projects were going to take. Then we took the time to build phenomenal teams. So we recruited okay. people from across different divisions. And we actually went to those parts of the business and said, give us your best people. The people you can't afford to give us. Those are the people we want. Yeah. The people that you will, you will feel the pain of losing for about 12 or 16 weeks yeah. and give them to us full time. Take their entire remit off them for that time. Think of them as going on parental leave during that time. Okay. Um, and then we went out at the time, we didn't have the kind of breadth of HCD experience internally. So we went out and brought in two wonderful external uh, consulting agencies. Uh, one was uh, a, a team from um, the US ex IDEO colleagues of mine, uh, a group called Daylight Design. Okay. And the other one was actually a group of uh, ex folks, ex colleagues of mine from my days at Westpac Bank in Australia. Um, a group called uh, Craig Walker Design. Okay. And so those two organizations really kind of uh, phenomenal uh, experts in a range of design disciplines, but particularly at the kind of strategic, human-centered and sort of service design end. And we brought them in to partner with members of the team that we'd recruited from inside. And so we used both of those as very visible spotlights, showcases for design. The work that they delivered was, I would genuinely say, and I've seen a lot of bits of work over my time, world-class pieces of um, human-centered design. And those insights and the recommendations um, uh, were used to influence many, many subsequent pieces of work over the years. But I think it definitely put human centered design on the map with literally hundreds of people who got to see the work and yeah. participate at various stages in the project. So for me, that was a, a really great, I mean, there are many other aspects of embedding HCD, but we got off to a really wonderful start. Yeah. I guess you probably used that as the North Star and you reverse engineered what you needed to deliver that fr- from those pieces of work. Yeah. But, but on those two pieces of work, Ofer, um, it's really interesting to see because in the role as a chief design officer, in other places I've seen maybe marketeers assume the role as the CDO um, and they're not able to effectively critique what good looks like when they're procuring design or they're evaluating what good looks like for the organization. Do, do you really feel like the fact that you've had the 10 years in Silicon Valley and You've got a great mix there between the mechanical and the business, uh, you know, 
your your academia background. Do you feel the the role um, and the experience that you 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 gained with IDEO gave you enough of a design kind of lens to review what good looks like for the bank? Mm-hmm. Look, firstly, let me say um, I've met a lot of marketers who are phenomenal. I know that. I just think that out of the I think that out of the top. Yeah, man. no, no, no. It could have been, but I, I think it's that's yeah. true. But it's important to say. I actually think that you know the ability to sniff what good looks like is definitely not just the domain of design, right? I think it's it's just a, and then frankly, I've seen many people from a range of disciplines who have that muscle, right? Yeah. And so it's a function of just having kind of uh, uh, maybe been around, seen a lot of success and a lot of failure in organizations and having, again, multiple perspectives, wearing multiple hats, right? Yeah, true. Um, and actually, just on the point of marketers, you asked me before, who were the people who were in the absence of service design kind of creating experiences? I'd say marketers have had a really big role to play. Some have done an amazing job and others not so much, but it's the same as every discipline. But I think yeah. marketing and design are incredibly strong kind of partners. Especially and for the, the large for proposition. And the lines yeah. sometimes blur, um, which is they great, but also dangerous. Sometimes it does lead to a lot of conflict that we can also talk about as well. Yeah. But um, in terms of... Next question. Um, yeah, but in terms of your question about, uh, look, I think, um, did IDEO give me, IDEO gave me so many um, uh, gifts in terms of skills and mindset and approach. But the one that I think I grew more from working in corporate environments subsequent to IDO was actually figuring out what works for an organization. I think at IDO, we were asked to define the North Star. We were asked to define the the, the iPod of whatever category we were working in, right? I mean, even some places, literally one of the projects I worked on at IDO was help us design the iPod of toilet brushes, right? Amongst other things that were much more... You, yes, you probably that one out of the park. I tell you what, I've I I've worked with a lot of people clean toilets. Right? I know that sounds creepy, but uh, so uh, we weren't necessarily asked to kind of design or create for clients the thing that was necessarily the best for their business, right? Yeah. And it took me a while when I was in kind of the real world, if you like, or I'd like to say when I left the monastery of IDEO uh, to determine that sometimes the ideal is not necessarily the right thing to do. Yeah. And so I actually think that it wasn't IDEO that helped me with, you know, that aspect of, you know, we always talk about uh, desirability, the three of like the Venn diagram of desirability, viability, feasibility. Uh, and I think at IDEO, we were obsessed with desirability. Yeah, we, t- we you know, we, we brought in uh, a really talented group of MBAs and we had some great people who came from a kind of a, a manufacturing or an execution background for the feasibility. But by and large, we were there to sort of say, to show what great could look like from a desirability perspective. Yeah. And I think in organizations, uh, 
the thing that initially I re- I've kind of was frustrated and resented was the fact that I had to push so hard to convince people about the business case for design, yeah. right? Or the fact that people were talking so much about, well, we can't do this because of this platform constraint, et cetera. But over time, I came to sort of appreciate those things and actually value them because it's those constraints that give you a good sense of what is possible, right? Mm. You try to push it as much as you can, but I think what, what great looks like inside organizations is not the magic necessarily. It's what's the best that you can deliver based on the available capabilities constraints that you can actually get to market that will make sense for the people that you're working with in the environment, in the regulations, et cetera. Um, that for me is what great looks like. And that comes with experience working in a particular industry in a particular environment. So uh, it's not it's not one size fits all. I think you've got, you've seen many fabulous designers or frankly, great CEOs who shine in one environment and then you pick them up and you plop them into a different industry and you expect them to do the same magic yeah. and they don't. And to some extent, it's because they don't necessarily understand the nuances and the constraints of that new environment, because what good looks like there might be different to what good looks like. Sure. Okay. So what I'm hearing is with those two projects that were procured by Miley, the definition of great was a co-designed effort that had multiple stakeholders defining great. Who were those stakeholders? You mentioned marketing, we're, we're at the table presumably business and Miley and design yourself, anyone else that was, in, was part of that conversation? Yeah. Well, well if you, if you go around one of the things that. I, just on that one, I don't imagine it was a conversation yeah. sitting around saying, okay, the agenda today is uh, talking about what great is. We're going to, anyone else yeah. need a conversation? I no. know it wasn't like that. Yeah. Well, look, we, we, um, uh, Miley was very new in her tenure. And so I think there was also, you know, she was writing this sort of, wave of enthusiasm in the organization for challenging convention and transforming. Um, and so everybody was excited, even though I think a lot of executives who'd been there a long time were, you know, quite rightly a bit sort of, um, miffed, uh, maybe not, no, I think just jaded about what could be done based on, you know, attempts in the past to change things that maybe hadn't gone so well. Um, but in terms of the stakeholders that we engaged, we used the, the Venn diagram to help inform which stakeholders we needed to engage. So if you think about, you know, what functions in the organization are going to help you with desirability, uh, you'll go and talk to marketing. You'll also go and talk to distribution, the people who run your yep. call centers and the your branches, branches yeah. uh, because that's an important part of the experience, right? Um, you'll also go and talk to the people who control your digital front end. So we had people, leaders from those functions involved in yeah. the, in the discussion. Then from a feasibility perspective, you know, we needed people who genuinely, genuinely understood what it took to deliver and manage great commercial banking products and services, sure. you know, banking loans, banking, bank accounts, et cetera. Uh, the same with home loans. Those, those are very complex technical areas. Yeah. And I don't mean just digital technology. I also mean just the nuances of, you know, how you uh, originate a loan and the yeah. legal environment that you're in, the regulatory environment, et cetera. It's 
highly, highly complex. So we needed people from that part of the background of that part of the business. Then you have to, these things rely on massive processes, Mm. uh, many steps, a lot of eyes, a lot of reviews. And so we have massive operational teams. And so the people who led those parts of the business had to be involved. Uh, banks are, uh, risk management machines. And so risk is all the risk function is always heavily involved. And then from a business perspective, we had our uh, finance team involved as well to make sure that whatever initiatives we were developing or ideas we were developing actually had a great business case. And so really that Venn diagram is a wonderful way, not only to look at the solution you're going to create, but also to help you figure out who needs to be on your core team and which leaders need to be involved in the conversation. Everything that we've kind of spoken about today has been on the positive side of things. Okay. So, um, you know, everything, you know, went in, you know, we got this work off and, you know, we've redesigned pieces. Conflict is one of the most important things in our toolkit. And not many people like talking about it or addressing it. Surely, surely at the start of when you went in there, there must have been quite a lot of conflict because with change comes conflict. What was your experience with that and how did you move through it? Um, because obviously you moved through it. You lasted seven years when you were working in there. There was lots of positive change at the end of it. But in order to evoke that positive change, you need to kind of, as I like to say, swim the pipe in terms of Shawshank mm-hmm. redemption. So what was that like at the start and how was conflict managed? How do you manage it as well? I'd love to know your thoughts. Wow. Yeah, I definitely swam the pipe. Yeah. I definitely swam the pipe. Yeah, that's and such you- an, it's such a visceral uh, image that you get from swimming the pipe. And it's a great, if you've seen the movie Shawshank, yeah. folks, you know what Look, I'm talking. Yeah. So um, there were a few reasons why I joined ANZ. Yeah. One of the biggest was the fact that um, there were already leaders, senior leaders who got design. That helped yeah. tremendously. Yeah. The second was the fact, you know, having done a little bit of consulting work there before I was hired in permanently, uh, I had an opportunity to experience the culture. And uh, the Ainsworth culture is actually a really, really lovely culture. They're, it's founded on deep respect. Uh, for the individual, mm-hmm. people by and large work together very well. And so there's a strong collegiate environment and are just a lovely, lovely people are nice to each other. Genuinely nice, not creepy Stepford wives nice, but really genuinely nice. And so that was important to me. I wanted to work in an environment where, you know, there was just, you know, founded on respect. And so let me say that at the outset, um, there will always be conflict, but if you've got a culture of people genuinely respecting each other, then the conflict tends to be managed very well, Mm. right? You always get some outliers and some individuals who are, uh, I'm going to call them fun sponges, right? But on the whole, um, people are, um, you know, people can be adults about the way that they manage conflict because I think as long as they've come back to sharing the same goals uh, 
uh, and aspirations. And if that goal is very much centered around what's the right thing for the customer mm. rather than what's the right thing for our department or what's the right thing for my own personal career, as long as it's founded in something that is a shared objective yeah. uh, or a shared audience, then um, you have a much more respectful way of managing conflict. But yes, there was a lot of, the, we, we tried to be very um, positive and supportive and generous in how we built design capability, but there were times where there was conflict. And interestingly, that's because design hadn't been well defined or, or um, embedded in the organization. And so there were a lot of people who already felt that they knew design. Yeah, And so for us to come in and say, hey, uh, you don't have the full picture of design. A lot of people took that very personally. I would say so, yeah. And so uh, it took us a while to sort of almost recognize, the, you know, the beginning we took people on face value. Sure. That, uh, you know, senior executives who nodded and said, yes, I get human-centered design. I know design. I've been practicing it for a while. And so one of the, I guess, maybe mistakes I made was to be a little bit too trusting. It took me a long time to see that actually they weren't applying design in a very effective or holistic way. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, there was some conflict there to try to kind of get people to open their minds a little bit and see and it, it adopt the broader view of design, especially in you know certain functions like, for example, proposition development, where um, we had to work with a lot of marketers to help them kind of... Um, bring in aspects of design to expand their view of proposition development, right? Yeah. Um, I would say the same worked the other way, but that's one aspect of conflict. The other one that I think was massive, massive, and continues to be most massive, um, and I think comes with the territory of massive organizational transformation at scale, billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar transformations right and that is how you take an organization that's been sailing along for hundreds of years and and quite quickly transform everything about them the products the services the technology the culture in some cases the people the organizational structures the brand everything you know it it, it is um it, you can get whiplash from the, the speed that changes yeah, are happening. Changed. When that happens, right, um, you get a lot of conflict because um, people are also under pressure to manage the status quo, right? For example, in our bank, we wanted to transform, but we still had to keep delivering dividends to shareholders and we still have to keep paying mm -hmm. people salaries and we still have to keep, you know, uh, providing mortgages. So we have to keep that status quo and the existing bank running yeah. while we were building all this new capability. And so oh, there no. was an incredible amount of conflict between those who were creating the transformation and those who were running the existing bank, even though both of them were required for the success of the organization, yeah. we started to get a bit of kind of cultural differences between the it's two. Uh, and that's a real challenge that I happens in every design project. So I'm sure every designer has had that experience to some extent of, you know, when you're not building a startup, but you're, you're trying to improve an existing organization, there's a point where the improving part of the business and the 
status quo, the legacy part of the business are coexisting. And how do you, how do you actually get them to support each other and not have conflict? That's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And I was going to ask you the follow on question around your own KPIs as a CDO. So are you okay to talk about what that looked yeah. like and in turn, uh, what you're responsible for and how you measured the impact yes. of any of those changes? Um, because obviously if you mentioned risk there and I've, I've experienced with working in financial institutions, they're really risk adverse. So when it comes to evoking this kind of change, there's usually a period there where the adoption will go down and over time it'll increase, it'll ramp back up over six months or something like that. How did you have those conversations, um, with people when they were like, oh, it's, you're actually going to break it. You're making it worse. And then the metrics reflect that. Because an often it's not always a, you know, we just change the button from blue to green and it's done and we've seen an increase in click-throughs. These things are structural. These things are organizational and they're cultural. The changes, as you can see, it's taken seven years to, to get to where it is now. Um, so that's a bit of a loaded question, but I guess we'll probably go back to your own KPIs and what the CTO was responsible for. Mm. Yep. So... Um, there's two, actually two aspects I want to touch on in your question. Uh, so with respect to KPIs, uh, just like I said before, the, the role of chief design officer didn't come with a handbook. It therefore didn't come with a set of recommended KPIs. Yeah. And so they had to evolve over time. And so I can talk through. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a really healthy consideration for every person in an organization and particularly I'd say for designers to constantly thinking about whether they've got the right KPIs. Yeah. So we'll get into that run right after I just kind of touch on the other thing that you spoke about is that things will get worse before they get better. Yep. Right. Whenever you make a change, it's not like the moment you embed the change, uh, there is a rapid and dramatic uptick or improvement, right? Usually. There's a uh, gestation period or an acclimatization period or a lot of kind of iteration and refinement before whatever change you wanted to make actually kind of delivers. Even if it does, in many cases, it doesn't, right? So you do take the organization backward. Um, that comes back to, uh, again, that's why having leaders who kind of buy into design are so yeah. important in the first place, right? Because buying into design doesn't just mean I get design. Buying into design means I get how difficult it is to make change. And I am willing to, to back it and support it in the long run, sure. even if there are periods of difficulty, because I have, I'm taking a, a leap of faith and I'm willing to see it through. Um, that is, I guess, what a good sponsor of design looks like because yep. the going will get tough and there will be points where they're going to have to make tough calls about resource allocation and budget allocation. They're going to have to, uh, there will be times where there will be a lot of criticism and challenge from other stakeholders saying, look, that design thing didn't work out. Look, it's worse than it was before. And those leaders have to invest a lot of their own brand credits to continue to support and protect and de uh, defend that kind of fledgling design function long enough for it to actually take root. So again, mm -hmm. I come back to strong sponsors of design 
need to be in place because things will get worse before they get better. And the only way you can kind of cross that valley is if yeah. people are there at a senior level going, no, we're going to, we're going to stay our, stay the course yeah. as we go through this period, because we will get to a better place or I'm willing to invest some of my career cred, uh, even if it doesn't get to a better place, but we're going to see it through because these things don't happen in an instant. So that's on the worst before it gets better. But on the KPI side, um, in the beginning, it's really hard. The thing that I was very keen to do, and only after seven years do I think that it might be start to be real, start to be realistic, is I really wanted to connect my KPIs to business impact, business results, bottom line, right? Like I thought to myself, look, the whole point of joining a bank, although you want to create great customer experiences, you want to do the right thing for customers, the reason the bank thrives is because they actually make a profit. Now, yeah. to profit isn't a dirty word. It's just actually the fuel that keeps the business going. That's yeah. the reason the business has been running for 200 years and the, the reason that they can continue to uh, give people home loans or business loans and you know, enable them to thrive is because they can actually run a profitable business. So the ideal for design is to be able to connect their results to the bottom line of the organization. Now, that's really difficult to do because, as we said, design is a team sport. So you can't, there's no one-to-one -one connection between what designers do and yeah. profit, number one. But number two, design takes a long time, right? Yeah. Uh, from the point where your service and strategic designers get involved, to the point where you can actually point to dollars being generated in the market might take you five, six, seven, maybe even 10 years in some cases, right? Sometimes yeah. it happens really quickly. You know, sometimes I've seen these things take place in six mm. months. But when you're talking about at scale, these things take time. It's 12 and to so in the beginning, yeah, the that's, from speaking people. that's it. Yeah. So in the beginning, my KPIs were much more based on activities right? Rather than outcomes. Yeah. For example, number of strategic projects applying HCD, right? Mm. Number of designers retained or recruited, number of women in design leadership position, number of HCD training courses delivered, right? Things like that are all project um, delivery. Um, delivering a skills handbook to the business. Yeah. What about right? inclusivity and diversity in the teams? Was that one of them? So we had metrics around, uh, you know, I spoke about women in leadership. Um, uh, increasingly, we focused on um, ensuring that we had a very objective recruiting process. Um, and so those inclusivity and diversity metrics were actually... Um, that's the other reason that ANZ was a fabulous place to work. A lot of those metrics were kind of universal metrics. We didn't need to run them specifically for design. Diversity, inclusion, accessibility, um, uh, gender, etc. All of those uh, general diversity and inclusion kind of focus areas were managed at an organizational level. But yeah, in the beginning, KPIs were very much sort of activity. Yeah. 
And then over time, once we embedded, then we wanted to start hold, to hold ourselves to account to the outcomes of an initiative or the fact that, you know, so it moved from just doing a project to how many of those projects actually secured the funding to move forward to eventually how many of those projects actually delivered results. Sure. The other problem with KPIs is even, you know, specifically in a bank, we were usually quarter or kind of annual cycle driven is that if the results happen a few years after you did the work, everybody's forgotten that you did the work. Yeah. And so they aren't actually on your scorecard. You might get some bragging rights to say, hey, I was involved in that thing that delivered another $100 million to the business, but it, it's not in your KPIs for this year. KPIs for this year are on the things you're going to do next. Yeah. So unfortunately, the other area that we really didn't have was kind of longer term metrics that were managed over cycles yeah yeah they are you know if you're the ceo a lot of your remuneration is but you know you get stock options you know and so you know more and more executives are getting some stock as part of their remuneration so that there's some connection to the longer term but unfortunately the scorecards and the kpis of most organizations don't really take into account the the length of time required to actually get to an outcome and to right. measure on those ones. So a lot of those were our, what we held ourselves to as a design community yeah. is, you know, your project is not done when you've delivered the project. Make sure that you stay connected to it. It's like yeah. your child, right? Make sure that you're yeah. out there looking after its, um, its welfare and that there are other people who are trying to keep it alive and make sure that it's, uh, it's brought out into the world. And don't and just start to think about the next project. And it's integrating with all the other children yeah. within the organization as well. Exactly. Exactly. We're coming towards the end of the, the episode, Ophir. I'm keen to know what you're working on and you know what's next for you because you've been out of the bank for a couple of months, I think, at this stage. You look pretty tanned. You're looking pretty toned. You've been hitting the beach, I can see, hitting the gym, hitting the bar. You see what? What, I'm definitely, what, what does it look like? Yeah, look, I am relaxed. I have to say, I've been uh, just doing things around the house, catching up on chores, spending more time nice. with my kids and my wife and the and the dogs. Say she's so loving really the having, for, What's that? Say she's loving having you at home. Uh, well, I you were flying up and down from Melbourne. Where, like, yeah, that's changing now, and I think she's keen to get me out of the house. Um, <laughs> what's next? Um, so I, I left. ANZ because I genuinely felt like the design function was ready to stand on its own two feet. And my commitment there, the thing that I wanted to do was to embed design in a sustainable way. And so I'm very pleased with um, where it's at. You know, if we talk about our children, I, I felt very much like design at ANZ was my child. And so I definitely didn't want to abandon it until it was yeah. ready to go out into the world. And so that's the reason that I decided it was time for me to move on. Mm. I like to build and run businesses yeah. and I'm incredibly passionate about where I see design and strategy going. And so I am establishing a consultancy with a good friend of mine and an ex-colleague uh, by the name of Toby Roberts. And Toby and I are about to um, launch a consulting business called Epilogue Group. Um, 
we have, and it's, it's a bit design and it's a bit strategy and it's a bit process engineering, um, but it's got a very, very specific focus. And that is to de substantially de-risk large change and investment programs. One of the things that we have observed time and time again, even across many industries, uh, is, is that most programs don't meet their intended objectives, uh, or they fail dismally, or they become, you know, zombies, right? And uh, all of us who've been involved in projects, so basically every designer, will know that there are many factors that contribute to the success of projects. One of those factors that we believe is incredibly important that we want to focus on is shared clarity, uh, ensuring that everyone on the project is very clear about the end state, the target state. What are we trying to build? What are we trying to achieve? If you're building a house, you won't begin until you've got a scale model or a blueprint. Mm-hmm. And you can actually see and touch, maybe physically touch a model of what your house or your building is going to look like. Mm-hmm. If you're going to build a physical product, a car, there is a concept car or a scale model, a model, a mock-up, a clay model that is created many, many years before the, the product goes to market. Everybody involved can see it, know what they're going to build. But by and large, when we're talking about digital transformations or service projects, there is no concept car. There is no end state that's well-defined. And most executives will argue that, well, that's what their project is there to do, is to build it. We will see it at the end. The problem with seeing it at the end is that when you build your army of people to execute, they all have a different picture in their minds. And so they often, you know, even though they all embark with good intentions, they end up building things that really don't fit together or the stakeholders get to the end of spending billions of dollars and they're really disappointed in what they've created or the customer doesn't care and has moved on. And so what we want to do is essentially bring design and strategy and process engineering to bear very quickly to help teams get clear on where they're going Yeah, by doing refine, helping them with their strategy narrative, but also helping them build a really quick rough prototype of where they're trying to get to just to ensure that everybody's on the same conversation and then they can plan backwards to make sure that they can move in a much more focused way to get to the end game. So that's what we're calling epilogue group. We help you write the end of your story first so that you can uh, move forward with a clear end in mind. Very nice. Very nice. So hopefully, um, Everything goes to plan with that. Is there a website that we can include in the show notes for a new business? Uh, ironically, we're still working on that. <laughs> okay. So that's our current project, and hopefully that project will be successful. I'm sure you know um, a couple of designers who can help you out. Yeah, I could probably hack something together, but uh, we, wanted to, that we wanted to make sure that we could tell that story very clearly and very succinctly. So yeah. watch this space. Hopefully... You know, as your podcast starts to roll out, people can check out epiloguegroup.com. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, coming very soon. If people want to connect with you, um, 
Are you open to LinkedIn connections? 100%. Yeah. Just through LinkedIn, if people want to direct message me at Offer Yomto on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'll put a link to your um, LinkedIn page in the show notes. But look, Ofer, I know it's been really early for you to get up out of your bed, but like I know from living in Australia, the sun rises really early over there. So hopefully you didn't feel like you were getting too early. But look, thanks for telling us your story. Um, you know, it's been really good learning and getting a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Also learning a little bit more around how you how you work and how you operate as you know the world's first chief design officer at a bank. Um, so thank you for giving me your time and your openness and putting yourself, I guess, on the stand to be to be asked a lot of questions that might be quite personal for you. So I really appreciate you giving me that time and energy. Jerry, thank you very much. Uh, I know that it's very late for you in Dublin, but again, thank you for uh, just creating this platform for various designers to share their stories. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed listen to, listening to others yeah. um, and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much, Ofer. It means a lot coming for you, honestly. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Take care. Thank you.